Hello, folks, and welcome to the uh, this month's Ask an Attorney webinar. I'm Kevin Michalowski, Executive Editor of Concealed Carry Magazine, and I'm here with Tom Grieve. As again, I will say, I'm not the attorney. We got the smart guy across the table over here. Um, trying something a little bit new here at the Ask an Attorney webinar. We've sat around the table, and uh, we'll even be bringing in a special guest to answer some questions. Um, Tom? Uh, one of the top uh, criminal defense attorneys and former state prosecutor. Thank you again for being here. Really appreciate it when you're here. I'm looking forward to this new format. Yeah, and uh, and you know we'll jump right in. We're talking about guns and cannabis, so this ought to be a lively and and raucous debate. So right. um, that's uh, it, it's one of the items that's out there. We're getting lots and lots of questions on it. Actually, uh, we're putting together a uh, uh, in-depth series of stories for Concealed Carry Magazine coming up uh, next year. Um, we're, we're trying to track this down, but uh, we wanted to take a look at it right now. So um, why don't I just hand it off to you? Uh, what What's your first uh, gut instinct when we're talking about the use of THC cannabis, not CBD oil or anything like that, but right. the use of, you know, um, marijuana, because it's getting legalized in a lot of states. How are you How are you feeling and what are you starting to hear about this? Sure. Well, from kind of a personal take and looking at things, number one, we have to be mindful of the fact that basically long short of this, it's always illegal under federal law. So yeah. even if it's legal in certain states, certain jurisdictions, you name it, we always had the federal component that's going to say no. Mm -hmm. So if you are using THC, even if you uh, have been prescribed some sort of medical card, if you're recreationally but lawfully mm -hmm. using, you're going to be running into that problem. So when you go to fill out a 4473 question 11E, you run into those problems. To me, kind of personally as an attorney, and how do I look at this? Big picture, going really big picture here. I look at it as, well, we have kind of somebody who's obviously impaired and under the influence, mm -hmm. right? Um, but then separately from that, is there something where it's just trace amounts in their system? Because, of course, unlike alcohol, with THC, if you use it, with cannabis, if you use it, three weeks later, you may still be dropping positive tests. So, Absolutely. And I think that's part of, part of the divisiveness for mm -hmm. some people to this issue because our testing procedures are so good, and it, compared to alcohol at least, it uniquely hangs around your system for so much longer. Um, I, I kind of break that out as to a separate area to my mind, mm -hmm. um, but the laws ne don't necessarily. Yeah, the laws haven't caught up with what's going on at the state level, and and uh, and I don't even I don't even know how many states now um, have legalized recreational marijuana, recreational cannabis use. Um, so it's something that uh, we need to try to get out in front of, and and uh, let's answer some questions from folks who are uh, sending them in. We uh, we put out a call for questions, and boy, we got some doozies out there. So if you're using THC for sleep, does that impact your ability to carry concealed the following day? And does using any THC at any time impact your ability to purchase a firearm? We mentioned the 4473 form. Um, you have to fill that out and you have to answer honestly, you know, are you right. currently an illegal user of any of the following drugs? And marijuana is on that list. It is. It's still a Schedule One controlled substance, according to the FDA. So it's right up there with heroin, methamphetamine, cocaine. And look, I'm not editorializing that. I'm just saying here's yep. what it is. Yeah. Here's what it is. So um, one of the big questions, of course, is if you're a current user, so for instance, for somebody who may be using something to be able to go to sleep or something like that, keep in mind, if there's an, a, an active THC element to that CBD, whatever kind of cannabis that it is that you're taking, you're still going to be testing positive the next day, meaning that if for some strange reason you're possessing a firearm and you're subject to a blood draw, your state may check your local listings, of uh -huh. course, but your state may make that a crime. 
Yeah, and, and they, they may look into it if they have any reason to do that. Sure. So um, we want to introduce uh, Phil Scott um, from the, uh, the Hemp Manufacturers Association, the president of that. Um, he's going to be on the line with us. Uh, maybe, uh, Phil, are you there? Can we hear you talking now? You want to chime in on any of this stuff? No, yeah. Thanks for having me on today, guys. Um, it, it, you guys are right on point with that, exactly how uh, you explained it there, where in certain states, you know, if you were to go outside and let's say I have my concealed carry and I need to draw and stand my ground and, and discharge that weapon, it does open up a wide, wide range of questions that will come. And if you don't know how to answer them or, you know, unfortunately, it might not even be how you answer it because the state might say we're going to we're going to put you in jail. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, um, it's uh, again, this is this is uh, basically the Wild West. This is wide open uh, um, um, from a legal standpoint. And there's probably not a whole lot of case law or anything like that out there. Tom. There's very little case law, at least when it comes to CBD oil. And I can yeah. tell you that as as an active criminal defense attorney at the largest criminal defense firm in the entire state here in Wisconsin, we see a lot of confusion and frankly speaking, candid confusion behind the scenes from law enforcement of Local law enforcement agencies are sometimes looking for direction from the particular elected district attorney in their particular county as to, well, how do you want us to handle these? Um, there seems to be just a lot of confusion. Um, so it's it's a bit of a mess. Yeah. Um, so let's go back to some questions here. Are there any restrictions for concealed carry in states with legal cannabis, any that you know of? And are there differences between recreational use marijuana and medicinal use cannabis? Sure. So. Well, I mean, for my end, I know that certain states like Colorado and Phil, you know, you may, of course, be able to speak to this more intelligently than, than I can when it particularly we're talking about the actual cannabis use and some of these levels. But to my knowledge, uh, they've basically constructed similar to our alcohol levels where we have a prohibited alcohol concentration or PAC. Mm -hmm. So we have a 0.08, yep. which I think in Utah, which may have gone to a 0.05 recently, yep. but otherwise 0.08. Um, likewise, there's a certain concentration of THC in the bloodstream of you typically measured as nanograms per milliliter in the bloodstream. And if you get above that, you've kind of turned into a prohibited level. I've heard that that's what that at least states like Colorado have done for operating motor vehicle. Mm -hmm. I cannot speak to whether or not that applies to firearms. Phil, you got any information on this? So what I've done and we've you know done a little bit of homework on it. It is that way. Like in Wisconsin, we've set up at least in the, the permanent hemp law that recently passed where you could have a, a one, I believe it's one nanogram uh, per liter in your bloodstream to, to have a trace amount show if you are taking CBD full spectrum, at least on that side. But on the cannabis side of it, no, they're, they're, they haven't really done much across the whole country. I know lots of groups have had conversations to try and introduce things so they can increase the levels or get at least something in place. Um, when Wisconsin did it, we became the seventh state in the country. Um, to have at least something stating a nanograms per um, per liter in the bloodstream. But beyond those seven states, and I don't have the whole list in front of me, and I do apologize, um, that's it. Out of, out of the 33 to 37 programs, at least medical in the country, there's only seven that have something in place to protect them um, at that level. And it's kind of scary where places that have full legalized medical and full legalized recreational you, you don't have anything that has anything with nanograms in the blood, and people are not protected in those states. It's kind of a scary situation to think about. And, Phil, is that mostly for DUI, for operating under the influence, um, the nanograms per liter um, in the blood? Um, 
I, I'm not yeah. familiar with anything that, that talks about firearms specifically. Uh, and, and that's what we've always been looking for as a law enforcement officer is, is, you know, it used to be that we were just, if we suspected marijuana use on an OWI stop, um, we would we would mark that on the test kit, and then it was any measurable amount would say that you were under the influence. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, you know, just for, for those of us, Phil, uh, who are, you know, maybe a lot of our listeners, a lot of our viewers here, you use the term full spectrum CBD and CBD. And that's of course something that I feel like I, I can't go to the grocery store to buy milk yeah. without seeing CBD. Somebody's selling CBD. <laughs> Can you explain just to kind of help some of the folks out here, what's CBD, what do you mean by full spectrum CBD? Oh yeah, I can go into detail on that. So there's, we classify it in three categories that we turn Wisconsin and, and the way we try to educate the consumer that there's the full spectrum that includes you know, it could have up to seven different cannabidiols in there, your CBDN, CBG, trace amounts, mainly the higher concentration of CBD, and it'll also have a trace amount of THC or THCA, depending on how well they, you know, decarb the process to make that conversion. Um, you have the broad spectrum that has everything else in it except the THC, and then you have what they call CBD isolate that has zero trace amounts of THC, just like the broad board. So the full spectrum has a trace amount. The other two do not have any THC in them at all. So you're going to have to become an educated consumer if you decide to use a CBD for any of those products as well. So absolutely. Yes. So somebody's only going to drop positive for some sort of Delta 9, whatever it might be, which is how it would come through in a bloodstream and a blood draw. Um, you're saying that only that first category, only the full spectrum should could have any trace amounts. Is that correct? Yes. All right. Got it. All right. So let's move on with another question. In Illinois, the state requires gun owners and CCW holders to have a FOID, that's a firearms owner's identification card. Purchasing medical and recreational cannabis is also illegal and is also legal in Illinois. If you have a medical cannabis card, can you legally have a FOID card? And if purchasing recreational cannabis, would that affect your FOID card? Now, the folks in Illinois are saying no. I saw that on the Illinois State Police page that... Uh, um, at the uh, at the cannabis dispensaries where they are capturing your ID, you know, come on in and, and here, show me your driver's license, and they scan it and, and or take a picture of it. Um, so far, the state police have, have made a public announcement, a very public announcement, that they're not sharing that information back and forth between um, who is getting cannabis and who is also um, in possession of a FOID card. But, um, and, you know, not to step off the ledge, but I don't know how much I trust Illinois politicians. <laughs> so, Well, and moreover, you know, there's, there's the question of, and Phil, maybe, again, you can speak to this. So if somebody goes into a dispensary, do they always have their driver's license scanned regardless of whether or not they make a purchase? That would be state by state. So on a trip, I'm, I was originally born in Alaska, and I was back two summers ago visiting there, and they had just rolled out their full recreational program, and the state had no capability to, to scan IDs, and they were still trying to play catch-up to roll out the program. So I guess it depends on what state you're going to at this point. Not all of them have that full technical side of it fully established to scan the IDs. Most of them do, but some of them are still struggling to get them there. And, and the people in Illinois, it is that issue where, at the end of the day, that question's still on your concealed to carry application, and you check that you're not doing it, but who's enforcing it, and how do we get it adjusted is a good question, because at the end of the day, you need to get your, let's say, medical cannabis, and that check you check that box saying you haven't done it or you technically won't, you know, if you're going to keep that, 
but you just hindered the law and none of those data points are being established and my biggest fear at some point, you know, is the ACF or is the DEA come together and say, hey, let's bring us all these data points together and now it's so enforced. And what's the statute of limitation on those? I mean, that's, there's lots of questions to be figured out, at least on our side. Well, and even upstream of all that, I know the question that pops to my mind is if somebody walks into a store, it doesn't automatically mean that they're purchasing. So if you're just scanning everybody's card who walks in, I think that that is that reasonable suspicion? Is that probable cause? Is that none of the above? It opens up a lot of legal issues for how are we going to tie these off? Yeah, absolutely. That sounds like a little bit of a Fourth Amendment issue as well on, on what are they searching and why and, and what right. are they going after. Uh, but most certainly, if if you have purchased recreational marijuana and then you buy a gun using the 4473 form and you say, no, I am not a user, you have lied on that form, and that's a federal felony. So um, if he's right. If they bring these data points all together and they decide to start enforcing something like that, that could open a real can of worms. So. I guess my last wrinkle in that would be if we're defining user as somebody who's actually consuming, mm -hmm. but if somebody goes to a dispensary, they make a purchase. Let's say it's a place where, well, whatever. They've yeah. got you on purchasing. Mm -hmm. But if you're giving it as a gift, and I don't know what the legalities of that would be because, again, Wisconsin's yeah, not a lawful good state. Christmas, wouldn't it? But, right, sense. you know, you're baking Christmas cookies, you <laughs> yeah. know, um, or you're trying to calm down Uncle Bob at yeah. that, uh, you know, it gets a little rowdy. Yeah. But point being is that if the federal laws are keyed into use, Mm -hmm. Again, we still have to make that jump from purchase to individual, I'm the user. Yeah, absolutely. So, so more issues. Yeah, and, and more opportunity for attorneys to make decent arguments about what's going on there. So um, Kelsey has a question. Why is it so easy to declare cannabis sovereignty from federal regulation, but so hard to do the same with gun rights? So <laughs> <laughs> and that's, I, I'll leave that for you. Well, so. and that's, that's frankly a very, very timely issue right now because mm -hmm. there's a huge movement sweeping the entire country. We're seeing it right here in Wisconsin, in fact, of Second Amendment sanctuary counties, mm -hmm. cities, and so forth, who are basically stating to one degree or another that, look, we may not enforce certain federal laws uh, if they're enacted, whether it's a magazine restriction, a so-called assault rifle, which, you know, I yeah. cringe at that term, but yeah. you get what I mean, an mm -hmm. AR-15 roundup, something like that. So. Um, I think one of the differences is that it's, it's, let's face it, it's the third rail of politics for the time being. Um, it, it just is what it is. Um, I mean, any thoughts, Phil or Kevin? Well, I'm, I'm I, I think. Go ahead, Phil. I think you're right on that one. I mean, it, it's a tough one that, you know, there's some give and take, but how do we get it resolved? I think you're right. I mean, there's no other way around it. And I think it's probably going to come down to uh, a, a state's rights, a Tenth Amendment issue. You know, uh, anything that's not specifically declared in the Constitution in the Bill of Rights is reserved for the states to determine. So um, we're not seeing any reference to controlled substances in the Constitution. So that, that's up to the states to do that. But now we have federal laws governing that as well. So it, uh, it does become kind of messy. And not to get boring, but you can also drag this into lines of interstate commerce and so forth, yep. which the federal government does uh, you know, was that Marbury v. Madison? Go, I'm going Too back late, to like, got boring. We should like move on. day one of law school. This was three <laughs> lifetimes ago at this point. But bottom line is that yeah. the federal government can put their hands in things that flow across state lines. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, with my understanding, Phil, correct me if I'm wrong, but in a lot of states, there you may see a lot of domestic production capabilities where that's, of course, not always the case or nearly the case when it comes to firearms. Yeah. Yeah, very true. It, it's very true. 
so we got a question from Tom. My wife has MS and has been prescribed medical marijuana. How will that affect me and my concealed pistol license and ownership of class four weapons? I'm wondering if he means class three weapons. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, 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 you know, any other weapon and class three is the only ones I'm real familiar with. Form four to get a class three. Form four, yeah. right, yeah. <laughs> form four, form one to build your, well, really it would be a title two weapon, which yeah. you need a class three license to sell. But yeah. the internet being the internet, we've kind of congealed all yeah. those terms and glued them all into one another. Uh, look, at the end of the day, if you're not the user, right. then according to the federal law, that's really what we're keyed in on. Now, the one exception I'd add to that is that at least here in Wisconsin, I have seen individuals who have been caught in possession of marijuana, who have been successfully prosecuted and convicted, who have had their concealed carry licenses suspended. Now, again, I'm trying to be very careful for you folks to draw the distinction between possession and use, because federal law yeah. seems to be primarily keyed into use. However, the interpretation and application of that law by at least this state, Wisconsin, is blending those lines um, mm -hmm. because I've seen this in cases where people have not been blood tested to, to prove so-called internal possession, i.e. they smoked it, they ingested it somehow, but rather they're just keying in on, look, I, they got a THC uh, possession violation, maybe even a ticket, not even a crime, and they're still seeing their Second Amendment rights taken away, albeit for a year, and I'm not trying to make that mm -hmm. sound like no big deal, but point being is it's not a lifetime. Yeah, and that's uh, absolutely, uh, you know, uh, and speaking as a police officer, don't talk to the cops. Don't say, right. yeah, that's mine. I'm using it. That's for personal use. Now you've admitted to use. Yep. You know, so, um, you know, us cops, we really like it when you volunteer information. Huge <laughs> 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 yeah. fans. Yeah. Huge yeah, fans. Great. Yep. Oh, that's a consent search. I get to get it right in there now. I get it all. So, um, Eduardo wants to know, will I lose my concealed carry license if I partake in recreational use? And again, I'm, you know, check well, your local listings. Right, check your local listings, of course, because Eduardo, I don't, I don't know what state you're in. If you were here in Wisconsin, uh, well, for that matter, if you're in any state in the United States, uh, you would technically be a prohibited possessor of firearms uh, under federal law. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I have to be careful because, of course, I cannot, as an attorney, I cannot... Uh, I cannot help you commit a crime. I cannot endorse someone to commit a crime. But as with any criminal issue, there's the question of um, how are you being caught? How are you being prosecuted? How are all those things actually folding out in a court of law? So law enforcement needs lawful reason to interact with you. Eventually, you know, if you say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm concealed carrying, but no, I smoked yesterday night, you may be putting yourself in that cross, so to speak. Yep, absolutely. Um, can they seize my firearms if I have a medical card due to being a prohibited person? Or can I just not buy new firearms? So the person currently owns guns, has a medical marijuana card, so is a user of medical marijuana. And then under the 4473, the question 11E, they would they would be in violation of that. Um, so where do you think that falls? Can you know? I, obviously, there's not a whole lot of enforcement in this area right now. Right. But the discussion point is, can I just not buy new guns and, and keep the guns I have, or is somebody going to come and take them? No, away? you're you're a prohibited possessor, and that's according to Wilson v. Lynch, which is a 2016 Ninth Circuit Court of Decision uh, Court of Appeals decision there, mm -hmm. which interpreted that 922 sub G sub three, which is the particular federal statute 18 USC. Uh, 922 sub, uh, sub G sub 3, for those of you who really want to look that up. Uh, that's the particular law that we're talking about that prohibits users of or somebody who's addicted to, and again, I'm, I'm air quoting that if you're only listening to this, uh, uh, to cannabis. 
Yes, it does apply. All this prohibition does apply to medical marijuana users as well. Mm -hmm. All right. So uh, we'll roll right on here with a question from Kurt. I am a retired law enforcement officer. My wife is a medically retired veteran. As yet, she has not tried any form of medicinal marijuana, either THC or CBD-based, for relief. If I enter a dispensary to purchase medicinals for her, do I risk losing my right to carry? Well, you know, it, we just we just kind of just yeah. dove into that a couple yeah. questions ago, actually, incidentally. I mean, long story short, no one knows. We'll mm -hmm. see. Uh, check your local listings because we have to deal with both possession because you said you'd be purchasing for her, which presumably then makes you a, a possessor of. But if you're in a state where this is legal and you're not transporting it to any state where it's not illegal unless you get federally caught and federally prosecuted, mm -hmm. um, there seems to be no originating criminal record coming from that. And otherwise, we're just down to kind of what we just touched on before. So official answer, yes, it, you're, you're, you would have the defense if you were charged if I'm not a user of, and it, it's going to come down to definitions of user. It, this is a gray area issue at best. And mm -hmm. I, I realize that's not a satisfying answer. It's just the best I got. Phil, y have you seen anything on this topic? I, I, I've seen, so I have a curveball to throw into all the questions that might help move it to another talking point and the some of the states that are increasing red flag laws back to the question where if i live in you know the potential same household with somebody else with a medical card with the red flag laws you know if they were to say well you live in this address and we can tie that somebody in this address has purchased cannabis through a legal state and they did go back and enforce it with the red flag laws that might be the door opening for them to come into the property immediately and seize the firearms and anybody that has tied to that address it's all hypothetical but those are sure. you know that ties into a whole nother situation that could lead into not only the concealed conversation but how it has to be addressed at all points and phil i had a uh, questions this came to my head because uh, uh, Wisconsin Hemp Farmers and Manufacturers Association, um, clearly there's probably some licensing and, and uh, monitoring that goes on in, um, of members of your organization. So um, to, you know, if you're uh, um, transporting your product or, or um, to a processing facility or anything like that, um, what are you faced with when you have to deal with, with basically the, the hemp farmers and manufacturing, the use of industrial hemp? Is there anything that uh, you guys are worried about um, dealing with that stuff in this burgeoning industry that's happening in Wisconsin right now? It is. I mean, we've had drivers, you know, he didn't, he was, his rig was pulled over because his blinker was out. And you know, unfortunately for that transportation driver, he actually had uh, uh, something had come up where he had something criminal or had an unpaid speeding ticket or something. So because of that, the state patrol was triggered to the, the pullover and then they, they walked the dog around the trailer and the day before he had been transporting hemp. So they, it turned into a pretty interesting conversation and luckily we were able to validate all the paperwork, but you know, he had the potential at that point to be arrested on site. And if that helps with kind of your question. Yeah. It, it's just an, uh, proof that this is a very convoluted situation all around. I mean, with, with something like that, uh, we're talking about the use of industrial hemp, and a dog might still alert on that. So, you know. And, and this is a multi-way conversation, right? Because you have the legislative branches in these particular states that are going a certain direction with the ball. You've got the federal government that, well, is frankly standing still with the ball. And then you have the judiciary, so the judges who are interpreting case law and so forth, who are just kind of also running their own way. And they're, at least on the federal level, they're sticking with Congress and 
and I've got a whole list of cases, but the gist to it is it's illegal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, that's condensing a lot of case yeah. law. It's illegal. Um, so it's, and then, of course, you've got law enforcement who's trying to figure out how are we supposed to enforce some of these laws, which are, frankly, in many cases, quite contradictory in nature, or at least invite contradiction in, into the discussion. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a wait and see. It's a lot of gray area right now. It's just a lot of gray area. Yeah. So here's a good question. And uh, this one I know I'm not going to get the right answer to, but we'll figure out a way to get the correct answer. As an instructor with the USCCA, do I have the right to turn down any person with a medical marijuana card from training? Um, you know, I would say to call the instructor support hotline and get in touch with our instructor team and, and the USCCA training department. I don't know why you would be asking someone if they had a medical marijuana card. I don't think that's on the list, but um, if you put that question out there and someone volunteers the answer, um, certainly. So, uh, again, that opens up a, a can of worms and a gray area of what's going on out there. But um, I think that's a question for our instructor team, and we have the instructor support site and uh, and uh, everyone who's, who's already servicing our instructor cadre. So we need to make sure that uh, this is something that's going to be addressed at the instructor level as well. What Kevin said. Thanks. Thank you very much. And, oh, excuse me. Let me get a drink of water here. I got him tripped up there, so that's that's one. That's, that's right. one today. We're, we're keeping score. In Illinois, when visiting a recreational cannabis store, they scan your state ID upon entering the building. Is this information sent to the federal government? Again, Illinois State Police says it's not. But, uh, you know, the uh, um, we are in the information age, folks. Um, that information is out there. And especially in this uh, post 9-11 world, they want to share as much information as they can. So um, I would uh, I would not put it past them to one day do that or maybe they're right. doing it now. Um, putting on my tinfoil hat here for this discussion. So. No, I, I, it's not a tinfoil hat if it's true. Right. So, yeah. I mean, I think at, at a minimum, what seems to be the trend and I, this is not my area of expertise, but. It's it's a it's an armchair hobbyist area of expertise. Is there's just a huge push among different government entities as well as corporations as well, just to harvest and gather in databases absolutely much information as possible, even if they don't know what they're going to do with all of it, because later on they can come back and mine it, they yeah. can sell it, they can do all those different things. So, basically, the question is less of a matter of are they doing it right now, which open question really yeah. as to what's happening behind you know these back doors, but it's also an, an open question as to will this happen at some point in the future. And if so, how will the laws then interact if, for instance, you went to a store in, in 2020 uh, and it's now 2025, what are the statute of limitations? Is this, mm -hmm. is this some sort of ex post facto punishment under the Constitution in case something comes up? Um, all, all open and valid questions. Yeah. Phil, how many times have you been audited? Uh, you know, you're the president <laughs> of the Wisconsin Hemp Farmers and Manufacturers Association. <laughs> are they, uh, are they uh, using that information, you know, across uh, um, internal state uh, um, boundaries, you know? Well, I don't think they're supposed to, but, you know, on <laughs> our end, our concern is that they are collecting it for future mining it. And someday they sneak it in somebody, some 500-page you know, subpoena that they're sneaking through some council or some subcommittee and say, yeah, you can do that now, you know, and, yeah. you know, it's a concern as, as lobby groups get stronger, it's easy to sneak a sentence or two into a future subcommittee and then have it reviewed. And then all of a sudden it's a nationwide investigation, yeah. you know, on our end, I think, I think ultimately what happens to this conversation if the president wakes up tomorrow and says, you know what, I'll find an executive order and I'm leaving cannabis to the state. And where does that conversation go? You know, for Wisconsin, I know we've got, on the Democratic Party, we got individuals writing full recreational bills. You know, AB 220, unfortunately, didn't get a committee hearing in our state. 
but at least Melissa Sargent's bill addressed the Second Amendment issues, stating if you have a medical card or a full rec, you would be able to keep your Second Amendment right. So I think legislatures are hearing it from constituents consistently, not only in Wisconsin, but around the country, that, hey, we need to do something to protect these. And it is a, it is a very hot topic across the whole country. Yeah, absolutely. Here's another good one uh, that just popped up on the screen in front of me. If you're a cannabis farmer, CBD, um, or maybe you're a cannabis farmer in a state that uh, authorizes, you know, recreational use of uh, cannabis, um, can you have firearms on your farm? You know, I know that there's lots of talk about, uh, you know, the large amounts of cash in, in Colorado because they're not allowed to use the banking system, and they're talking about how they can protect themselves. This, this to me, looks like a major can of worms. Phil? <laughs> uh, well, on our farms, our farmers are armed, and, you know, they'll do what they need to do. It would just hemp. But on the cannabis side, I, I think the way that those companies have addressed it is instead of, Potentially, their employees or themselves owning firearms or having firearms on themselves. They they privatize the security, so then the security, you know, typically will have all the type of insurance and things like that. So then they are there's kind of a uh, shield in a way around that. So yes, those dispensaries do have armed security guards. So there's got to be somebody taking the liability or risk or figured out a way to do it somewhere along the line because they are contracted firearms protect secure shoot first, ask later type situation. You know, these these are the things that are out there, and I've seen it. I've walked into dispensaries, and they have fully loaded guns sitting there with a security guard. So I think they're, the dispensary side of it, the retailer side of it, at least is figuring out a way to get around that to protect themselves liability. Yeah. Um, but the farmers themselves, realistically, I mean, it's their land at that point. They're protecting their land, no trespassing, especially with marked. I mean, it's you are right. It is a can of worms. Well, and, and hopefully they're not shooting first and, and asking questions later, of no, no, course. No, no, <laughs> we don't want to hear that. But it sounds like they're trying to outsource the liability, in yeah. essence, and so. we'll see how that yeah. goes. Yeah. So we got a question here from Dave. Yeah. Dave knows several people that have lied on their firearms application about using marijuana. Why aren't they prosecuted? Well, first of all, Dave, what kind of people are you hanging out with? Uh, <laughs> several of them, as a matter of fact. Um, but... Uh, um, right now, you know, very rarely do we see a lot of enforcement on, on the 4473 forms. It's uh, um, the ATF kind of has bigger fish to fry. And, and honestly, the amount of people, um, when we're talking about millions of guns being sold every year, um, if, Dave, all of your friends are just lying on the form, then, then it's, you know, that's, it's not really not going to tip the scales. On that. It's just it's. There's so many people who are, are getting denied background checks, and conceivably, at least a large portion of those people, um, you may be able to go after them. But again, and I'm, and I'm not endorsing that necessarily mm -hmm. in each and every case that should happen. There are issues of just plain old confusion about things. Um, but there is just an issue of allocation of law enforcement resources. It's, it's a finite amount of resources. It's a finite amount of people. And uh, to their mind, I would, I would infer mm -hmm. they've got bigger problems. Yeah, absolutely. Here's a good one, um, and I, this is going to be a good lawyer question, too. I'm an uh -oh. Uber driver, and I carry while driving. And don't tell the folks at Uber that. That's probably why this <laughs> came in anonymously. If I have a passenger who is in possession and I was to be pulled over, can I be in trouble for it being in my car while I have a concealed weapon? So, you know, typically if we can't identify who is in possession of a certain substance or item in a vehicle, that item or substance belongs to the driver. 
you know, you're responsible for everything that's in your car. So how is this going to work with an Uber driver? Well, for starters, I'm assuming that you're in a state where this is lawful, mm -hmm. that the person who got into your ride is lawfully possessing. Um, I'm also assuming that there is a degree of discretion. In other words, they're not walking into your car holding a full-grown plant or part of a plant, and it's just obvious and apparent. A wrapped kilo. A ra of, right, yeah. Just a wrapped <laughs> kilo that they threw in your dashboard, right? I, I'm assuming that something like that didn't happen because what we have to do anytime we have a big-picture hypothetical is let's break this down into what will probably be the most common scenario where we may see this play out. Now, I'm assuming that since he asked this question, um, maybe he knows about it being there. Maybe he picked up somebody at a dispensary who's waiting inside and comes out because it's cold outside or something like that. Um, I mean, again, candidly, <laughs> you check your local listings is what's mm -hmm. going to be. The definition, broadly speaking, for possession is that if you have knowledge that it's there and if you have access to it or ability to access to it, you may arguably be in possession. Uh, which I realize can be incredibly frustrating because for somebody who's in the front seat, if you're in a sedan or something like that, uh, you will very likely be in possession of things in the back seat. So, uh, you know, I'd, I'd say at a minimum, making sure that somebody uh, at least takes it out of your possession. So, hey, it's in a backpack, it's out of reach, it's at the far corner, it's in your trunk, something like that. Um, another option is to not pick them up, which... Again, I'm, I'm just kind of throwing all the options out there. I'm not trying to editorialize anything. Um, but if you believe that there's a risk, if, particularly a criminal liability issue, um, then you've got, you've got your own issues yeah, on that. Yeah, it's, it's one of those don't do it kind of situations if you can, if you can avoid it. Here, here's one, and, and this one will be uh, good for you. If I'm prescribed a scheduled substance other than marijuana by a physician, I read that they are not an unlawful user. Does your lawyer, that, that would be you, That's me. think that is the correct reading of that? Yeah, you, would be an, you wouldn't be an unlawful user, but you could still be under the influence. You can, even if you're prescribed opiates, you can't drive when you're doing that. Right, or you may not be able to drive, yeah. at least if you're impaired. I mean, so there's broadly three different classifications of, of, of narcotics. And again, we're going really high view just to kind of give people a crash course. We have Schedule One controlled substances. So like it or love it or hate it or whatever it is, you've got cannabis, you've got heroin, you've got meth, you've got cocaine, you've got all that kind of stuff. You've got schedules two through four. So we're talking about basically things that you would need a prescription to obtain and in, in almost every case. So we're talking about Ambien, which is a prescription sleep aid. You're talking about oxycodone, Vicodin, uh, all those kind of prescription opiate uh, painkillers, things like that. So it's it runs the gamut, but then you also have this whole category of unscheduled drugs, according to the FDA. So think about things that you can buy over the counter. We're talking about Tylenol, Tylenol PM, aspirin, things that have been that fall under the FDA's purview as being a drug, but it may not be enough to be a controlled substance, so to speak. So just what folks may not know and what I run into is that, look, even if you're taking Benadryl, which is a drug, at least here in Wisconsin. Well, it's a drug. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's not a controlled substance. Um, you can still get a drunk driving from Benadryl. Mm -hmm. You can still get a drunk driving, and I've seen it. Yeah. Uh, you can get a drunk driving. There was a case where somebody was charged with a drunk driving in, uh, in California for caffeine, believe it or not. Wow. I don't well, know if he yeah. was convicted, but I did read yeah. about that case. And I guess it would fall under the operating while impaired, you know, whether or not you are impaired, you can safely function and operate that vehicle. And there's different levels, and I won't bore folks on it because I realize that we're on a tangent to a tangent, but I just want to let people know there's a lot of nuance to this. There's a lot of small moving parts, and those parts are a moving target by themselves because laws change 
you get courts that come out, uh, precedent-setting courts that come out, courts of appeals, local state supreme courts, and they will pivot then the construction and the interpretation of those laws. So mm -hmm. you have to be very careful. Um, if you're impaired with a firearm, that can create a lot of problems, not only for you legally, but physically for both yourself and others. This would be the appropriate time for me to say a person should have a good attorney you know, <laughs> at, uh, uh, if, if you're going to do something like this or you find yourself caught up in something like this. So. Right. Matthew asks, recently the federal government had talks about the legalization of weed on the federal level. Assuming it is passed, will I be allowed to partake like I do with alcohol and the next day wake up and carry without fear of jail? I would assume if it was legal, yeah, then we're, we're probably going to have some definitions as to how much you can have in your system and what makes you impaired. Great question, but it necessitates a lot of follow-up questions before I can give you an answer, at least from my end. And I'll, I'll give this a crack, and then, Phil, if you want to give it a crack, too. From my end, I'd be worried about, okay, so if we make it legal to consume um, under federal law, right, well, keep in mind, we still have states that right now that are keep it illegal. So we now have a state issue of can you have, so, you know, can you have a, a pop brownie one night, and three days later, it may be you're no longer impaired or under the influence, so to speak, but it may still be in your bloodstream. Unless your states have updated their state laws, you may still have a detectable amount of active THC in your, in your bloodstream, which means that that could be a crime for you to simply possess that firearm. So right now, we kind of focus mainly on the federal prohibitions, but keep in mind, there are still many states, like here in Wisconsin, where any detectable amount can be a problem for you. Um, but otherwise, look, how, if they do it, how do they do it, what exemptions do they create, and then, like I said, you then have to roll back to then look at the states that still have different prohibitions, they still have concentration level restrictions, and how are, how are what you are doing or plan to do, how are you going to take those into account? Yeah, and... Phil, do you have uh, anything I missed there? No, you answered it almost... Right on point. That was actually very well explained. I mean, that was good. good. Good job. I have my moments. Yeah. You know, I was drinking some Mountain Dew before. So, yeah. so uh, um, and this question, this next question from Afraid in Florida rolls right into that. Um, if one tests positive for THC while using CBD oil and is a concealed weapons permit holder, are they subject to prosecution? And uh, your recent answer, I mean, I, I feel like that covers that almost perfectly. Uh, Possibly it, it is, yeah. is the quick answer to it. Depending yeah. upon state laws, check your local listings. But if you're in a state with so-called zero tolerance, where any detectable amount of you know a delta that comes back, delta nine, delta eleven, whatever you know, it, it, um, you and you come back either over the concentration threshold for whatever reason, or you come back uh, as positive in a state which. If it's positive, you're done, then yeah, you've, you've got potential yeah, problems. You, you could be in trouble. Um, another anonymous question. Can you please address the Block 11E on the Form 4473? Does that mean the sale of a firearm to anyone prescribed medical marijuana is prohibited? And I, I'll let you give that one with a, you know, I mean, at the federal level, sure. Yes. Yes. So Yes, you, that's Wilson yeah. v. Lynch, 2016. I had a feeling this question was me coming up today, mm -hmm. so I made sure I had the case in my pocket. Wilson yeah. v. Lynch, 2016, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, says that this prohibition does apply to medical marijuana card holders. So, yes, if you answer that you are a user of marijuana on formal, on uh, Block 11E on that 4473, you are now um, going to be rejected if they if they uh, you know do a, a close search of your... Your 4473 as it goes through. Yeah, you can't. If they bother to look at your yeah. answers, you know. Yeah. 
Um, BA is the only reason a CCW permit holder will forfeit their permit in Florida because of the scheduling the FDA has given medical marijuana. This is a good argument to be made as it is being used for medical purposes regulated by the states. Um, and at the state level, yeah, the state is going to do what the state's going to do. Um, a lot of what we're talking about here comes back to um, the ATF form is, is a federal document. It's a federal form, and that is a federal law on the transfer of firearms. So um, my suggestion is just going to be don't use any type of marijuana and, uh, and then you're an when you're answering your form 4473. Um, because, you know, you can say, yes, I use marijuana and tell the truth, or you can lie on the form and say, no, I don't use marijuana, and if they find out, um, then you've lied on the form, and that's a federal felony as well. You know, just something else to throw out there, too, is you've got to be careful about the fact that, oh, pardon, where was I going with that? It must have been that Mountain Dew kicking in. Y yeah, because you look at me like I should know. <laughs> It'll come back to me. Phil, do you? I had you, a good one. Do you know what Tom was about to say? Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 don't lie on the form. I'm yeah. just kidding. <laughs> yeah, don't don't lie on the form um, because you know the if you tell the truth on the form, you'll just be rejected. You won't be able to buy a gun. If you lie on the form, that's an official felony. So it, it could be worse. So. Oh, okay. I remember where I was going with this. Phew. I knew right. we could bring. Thanks, it back guys, around. for filling that for filling yeah. me in there. So you something you do have to watch out for in many states is they do what's called an incorporation via reference in their state statutes. So, for example, here in Wisconsin, we have uh, a statute 941.29, which basically says, "Look, here's all the the state of Wisconsin reasons why you can be illegal." But oh, by the way, if you're also prohibited under federal law from possession, then we're also just saying that you're also illegal here. So one of the reasons for Wisconsin for why you're illegal could be via an incorporation via reference to the federal laws. So what I'm saying is that you have to be careful that even if the states create these little tease-out narrow exemptions or something like that, that you have to watch out for just those one little throwaway lines, which may not be so throwaway because if they're still incorporating in some other administrative agency like uh, the ATF, the DEA, or something like that, but more likely, rather than administrative code, they're citing directly to, uh, to federal statutes. Um, and again, we're specifically at 18 U.S.C. 922 sub G sub 3 here as being the one that prohibits. Uh, I hope people are writing that down. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's, that's the one that we're talking about here as being the one that prohibits a user of marijuana from, from possessing. So watch out for those incorporations by reference. All righty. So uh, another anonymous question because this guy uh, or, or gal appears to be worried about their medical marijuana license. Um, I don't know when I purchased my last firearms, that answering all the questions on the application put me at risk of perjury due to my medical marijuana license. What should I do? Um, flee the country? Uh, no, that, no, no, stay put. Um, it, you know, if, if you have a medical marijuana license and you filled out 11E and said, no, I am not a prohibited user of marijuana, you have technically lied on your form. I don't know when or if the ATF is going to come back and check all of those forms and then say, you know, John in, in Buffalo, New York, uh, lied on this form. Let's go get it. Right. And, you know, this gets back to what I was touching on before, which is, you know, look, there are some people who are just very clearly lying on these forms. You've got somebody who was just convicted of a felony a year mm -hmm. ago, let's say, and yeah. now they're saying, no, I'm not a felon. Like, okay, mm -hmm. trust me. That person got plenty of warnings from their attorney, the judge, you name it, that, oh, by the way, pleading to a felony makes you a felon, all right? Mm -hmm. um, without going down the rabbit hole, there are areas in law in the criminal justice system 
where it may look like this, but it's actually that, or may look like that, but it's actually this. And that's the reason why I'm saying some of these forms can be mildly confusing at times, at times. So I'm not giving people a carte blanche or anything like that, a free hand to lie on these forms or anything like that, because you shouldn't. But I do acknowledge the fact, and I've spoken to many individuals over the years who have contacted our office uh, to say, look, uh, I got denied. What do you mean I was denied? You know, what, what's the problem? And I, and I helped them sort it through, and they, they didn't know that they may have been a, pro a prohibited user for whatever reason it was. All right, next question up is, do I need to worry about making private firearm sales? I, I would like that question to be longer and, and more detailed, but, um, you know, it's a private firearm sale. It's a private sale between two individuals. Um, I would be worried about who I'm selling a gun to just to make sure that the person's not a lunatic and going to go out there. And, and the gun that I bought legally after filling out my 4473, um, ATF still thinks I own that gun when I sell right. it privately to someone else. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, on the private sale part of it. No, there's, you know, there, there's, there's no federal regulation covering the private sale from one person to another. You could run into issues if you're, if you're, if you have a reason to believe um, that you could be selling in a private sale your firearm to somebody who is a prohibited user, mm -hmm. right? So if somebody shows up with their felony conviction stapled to their forehead, you know, um, <laughs> and obviously I'm being I'm being glib about it, mm -hmm. but you know, if if you do have that situation or somebody is just they're 10 years old, yeah. right? Okay. I, can't sell a firearm to this person, right? Yeah. Um, so you do have to be careful because as an example, and I'm just going to use an extreme example, you walk up to somebody uh, or, you know, you run into somebody, you meet them, you, you broker it online through whatever website, you meet them at wherever location you're meeting and they're smoking, you know, cannabis. I realize that this sounds crazy, but you could be looking at some legal liability because then you're seeing that this person is technically under federal law a prohibited user mm -hmm. uh, or a prohibited possessor of, of uh, firearms. So it's a weird issue, and I realize I'm going to an extreme scenario, but mm -hmm. let's go there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Phil, anything on that? Uh, um, are, you know, I'm sure that uh, some of the folks in your industry are are buying, selling, and trading firearms as well. Um, what are people talking about? Well, I, I mean, it's a tough one. I mean, uh, things are definitely handed and sold at shows and things like that and personal sales. And like you guys have said, it's just a very touchy subject. Some people won't even, I guess, talk about it. It's just private business. And, you know, they are scared of liability coming back down the line and who's going to do what and what and where. The statute of limitations limitations that we keep talking about. I mean, you guys have touched base and covered most of, I think, the questions that are there. You guys are definitely very knowledgeable. We have our moments. Yeah, thank you. And, and you know, I'm, I, I don't have to worry about this anymore because I have vowed to never again sell another gun. So I'm, I'm, in, the, I'm in the acquisition phase at, at this point now. Phase. So Nick wants to know if my roommate smokes and I don't and a break-in occurs and I fire shots to defend myself, how will it affect my case? Um, I love your statement, the facts are the facts. You know, the, the roommate may have been smoking, and Nick was doing the shooting, so I, I don't think we're going to get crossover there. What do, you, what do you think? Well, I mean, look, it, the facts are the facts. If you have, so to speak, a good shoot, so if you mm -hmm. followed all the laws, whatever they may be, in your particular location for self-defense, that's going to be, at a minimum, it should be the headline of the case. Mm -hmm. Now, don't get me wrong. If you start to push things into gray areas, I can easily imagine a prosecutor trying to influence or sway a jury by trying to introduce the fact that you're in a place where, quote-unquote, drug use is going down or yeah. something like that. So, mm -hmm. And there's 
there's a lot of studies out there cited by a lot of different courts that attempt to correlate or do correlate in their view uh, drug use with various uh, various activities um, that aren't great. And you can pick apart those studies, uh, as many have, about the fact that, well, look, comparing crack cocaine to marijuana, these are two very different things here. But at the end of the day, you're opening yourself up to those kind of attacks and those kind of prejudices and judgment by people, whatever their views may be, because if you're going to be around that, you're exposing yourself to people on the jury, whatever their views may be. Mm -hmm. uh, and likewise, anybody who reports about it in the media or anything like that, keep in mind, all those sorts of things can be coming in. And that's not me attacking those individuals. That's just me trying to inform those individuals. Yeah, it's just another hurdle your attorneys have to get over right. when, when uh, they're mounting your defense. Potentially. So Yvonne says, in my opinion, cannabis and firearms do not belong together. What's your opinion? I'm going to hand that over to you. <laughs> well, like I said, <laughs> in my mind, I have, um, I draw a distinction between somebody who is actively under the influence because you shouldn't have anybody who's actively under the influence of anything. Right. Um, apparently, maybe even Mountain Dew, uh, possessing any kind of firearm. How many Mountain Dews did you have? I, I swear, just half. Okay. Okay. Um, so we, we get to that issue on the one hand versus somebody who, look, maybe they went to a state or, or who's, you know, has recreational statutes, whatever it might be. They used two, three, four weeks ago. They may technically still test positive. Um, I look to that as what's the difference realistically between somebody who does that versus somebody who had a drink two weeks ago or something yeah. like that. So um, now that's not me speaking as, as an attorney because an attorney, I'd say, follow the law, right? Uh -huh. Even if you test positive, then you cannot possess firearms. I'm sorry. That is what it is. We may not like it. Maybe you do. But I'm just observing the reality of the situation. But I look to it for, personally on kind of the what if, if Tom is writing the laws, that's how I would look, is really, are we active under, under the influence? Are we actively impaired, or are we beyond that? Mm, absolutely. Um, Phil, let's get your opinion on that. I just want to make sure that everybody gets a chance to chime in. Um, cannabis and firearms, you know, if Yvonne says they don't belong together. Um, you're obviously working in an industry where we're getting a little bit of crossover now, and, and you probably have something to say on this. I mean, my opinion is the Second Amendment clearly states we have the right to bear arms. And the way hemp and marijuana, future classifications are going to come around, I think, and both of them will be potentially put in that commodity crop where hemp is going there and, and cannabis, marijuana will be there at some point. You know, once it gets classified as a commodity crop, I don't think there should be any questions at the table that you should be able to own a firearm while consuming cannabis. I mean, in some states, the way alcohol is written, I can go have one beer, it'll be justifiable in the court of law to be able to drive that vehicle as long as I blow into that legal limit. And, and then, you know, you calculate the body weight and everything else. And there's just lots of questions that need to get answered. And so my opinion, yes, you should be able to have that crossover. And there, there really shouldn't be any pushback on it because I can grow corn and soy and all that. I mean, that's at the end of the day. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the way I'm looking at it is um, – under the influence or impaired, uh, let's look at it that way, impaired is impaired, no matter what you're using to be impaired. Um, so I would love to have a, a good solid legal definition of how many nanograms per liter of blood, you know, s makes one impaired when they're using that because nobody should be impaired and carrying or using a firearm because it just completely messes up your judgment. So we don't want that. We want to be responsible firearms owners and users um, at the same, by the same token, um, 
you go home at night, you have a drink, the next morning you get up and you're involved in a shooting, um, you're, no, you're no longer impaired. And, and that's a, a, a very clear legal statute that's out there that, that says when you're impaired. I would love to see that for marijuana, and I would love to see nobody using a firearm impaired by anything at all. So um, I, don't, I don't care what it is, whether it's cannabis or alcohol or, or um, prescription opiates, I don't want people impaired if they're carrying a gun. Right, and I just think realistically, from a, from a what's politically palatable, I mean, we can kind of get on a libertarian soapbox about this mm -hmm. and that, but at the end of the day, I think that's that's the realistic kind of best case end game if we're trying to look at this from a a I hate to use use the term common sense, but a maybe common politics uh, end game of where can this go? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> one more question here. We got a couple more coming up before we we wrap it all up. Uh, is I carry, is it illegal to be with someone carrying legal marijuana in the same vehicle? And I think we've touched on that a little bit. Carrying um, legal marijuana? Yeah, it? yeah. The, the, and it, it, it's in quotes, so legal marijuana. Um, it, somebody carrying a firearm right. gets into a car with somebody who has legal marijuana. Say you're in the state of Maine or Illinois or something sure. like that. Um, is that, you know, the fact that you have a firearm now in the vehicle and marijuana in the vehicle? Well, we're, again, under federal law, if you're going to be a user of or anything like that, so assuming that we don't try to move the goalpost here to make user of, to be in possession of, mm -hmm. and also keep in mind that if law enforcement, for whatever reason, does make that stop, and let's say that's, that it's illegal or anything like that, mm -hmm. they're still going to have to prove the knowledge aspect, which, again, let's face it, cannabis being cannabis, there's a smell, so that could be used to imply knowledge, if you were, or to mm -hmm. infer knowledge, and that's going to, could be a jury question at the end of the day, um, but at the, I don't know all the, the individual state laws in all these different states. I'd assume that if you're not in possession of it and if it is legal to possess and if you're not using it, then it would seem to me to be lawful under the federal statutes. Candidly, I'd, I'd have to do some more research on it, but that seems to be uh, congruent with, with the knowledge of the laws right now. Yeah. And it uh, looks like we got the final question coming up here. I'll roll through this, and then I'll make sure that everybody gets to know uh, um, who, uh, where they can find Phil and, and you as well on there. But uh, it looks like we've gone over this one a couple of different times. It's, it's worded just a little bit differently. Is it under the influence while you're carrying, if you've taken to jail and given a urinalysis and it shows positive, still consider it under the influence if it was days or weeks ago? And we're getting back to that at what level and duration and time and, and stuff like that. That question is, is out there. And I don't think we have a right answer for that yet or a solid answer, you know, a bright, bright line statement on... Well, and, and the, your, the question presupposes that under the influence is connected to a particular level or positive test, mm -hmm. which it isn't. Um, at least it isn't in many states. Um, many states just have a strict, if you have a detectable amount of any kind of restricted controlled substance, i.e. a Schedule One controlled substance, which includes cannabis, then if there's a detectable amount, equals crime at that point. Certain states may fix some sort of limit or number on that. So my next question, since particularly this, whoever asked this, was referencing if I test positive on a urinalysis, well, what are the levels set up for that particular urine screen? Or do they match the state levels? So if the state says you can have it up to 0.5, you know, 5 milligrams or 5 nanograms per milliliter, um, milligrams would be quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, but if you had 5 nanograms per milliliter, you know, if the urinalysis screen goes positive at 1, mm -hmm. then, you know, what does that really tell us? Maybe you were 2 or 3 or 4, which may be under that state's laws either now or in the future. Maybe you were a lawful 
you were lawfully possessing. So there's questions about the law, there's questions about the tests, there's questions about testing procedures as well. Lots of questions that go into that. At the end of the day, check your local listings and keep checking them because big picture, these laws will keep changing. Yeah, uh, we're in a very fluid situation with all of this sort of stuff right now, so we'll try to keep people up to date as best we can. So, uh, well, I look at the uh, clock on the wall, and as my therapist says, our time is up. So, um, Phil, I want to thank you for being here, and why don't you tell everybody where they can find out more information about the Wisconsin Hemp Farmers and Manufacturers Association? Uh, you can type the name on Facebook, you can type the name on Instagram, both of them are there. Uh, our website is WI, like the initials for Wisconsin, and then the HFMA.org. Uh, we are a nonprofit based on education and reform and just trying to keep moving the laws forward to help everybody be able to get to market. Uh, thank, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for being here. I really appreciate the insight that you provided to us. And, Tom, you can take it away. What should folks do to sure. help you out for this? Well, I, I, folks, I don't know if you still have the, the link for Leave Me a Review underneath this. Hopefully you do. But even if you don't, you can either click that link. And, guys, something that really enables me to be able to come here, to be able to, to do this content and prepare for this content or all the fantastic reviews and feedback that we get. Um, it means a lot not only to myself, but to all of our people back at the office. As I mentioned, we're the largest criminal defense firm in the entire state of Wisconsin. If you could just take a moment, folks, and again, we're on a different location now, um, so if you could just take a moment, hit that link. It's going to ask you to grade us on five stars. It's the internet, so four out of five is kind of a failing grade. If you felt like you got anything useful out of this, please, 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 please check it out. You can also Google us, Grieve Law. And what we're looking for is for you to go in that upper right-hand Google picture uh, to leave us a review. Going to our website doesn't do anything. We're looking for the Google review. Click write a review. Five stars. I do review all these myself. It's not some marketing intern. So thank you in advance. I will be reading all these. I will be responding to all of them. Thank you in advance for any five-star reviews. Well, thank you very much for being here again, Tom. And folks, everybody who's watching, thank you for watching. This is your member-only content. This is your Ask an Attorney webinar. Um, we do this specially for you guys every single month, so we really appreciate you being here. And uh, thanks again to our guests, and we'll be back next month.